argued in my first podcast that there is no doctrine of hell in the New Testament, at least not as popularly understood. There is no belief in a state of unending conscious torment after death. There will be a final judgment of all the dead, just prior to the renewal or remaking of heaven and earth, after which the wicked will be finally destroyed in a second death. Now that's the cosmic backstop, the good creator will have the last word. But what the New Testament is mainly interested in is what happens to peoples, nations and empires in the course of history, long before we get to any final backstop. And it seems to me that most of what is said about destruction and torment has forward-looking reference either to the catastrophe of the Jewish war against Rome or to the defeat of idolatrous Roman imperialism. The simple but pervasive belief in the New Testament is that God would judge his own people because of their rebellion and then would judge the arrogant and unjust enemy of his people. But if that was the bad news... What was the good news? Well, basically, it was the flip side of the historical coin. We will see that, in a sense, the bad news about the wrath of God was the good news. Let's begin with a a quick overview. The background to all this lies in the announcement of good news to Israel that we find in the prophets, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was about to act to rescue and re-establish his people. The good news of the kingdom that Jesus preached was that Israel's God was about to act in history to save his people. And as this story was retold by the early church in the pagan world, it was perhaps in self-conscious defiance of the Augustan gospel of peace and security, the dominant Roman counterpart. For the early Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, the good news for Israel included the fact that God had raised Jesus from the dead that he was therefore Messiah and Lord, the one to whom all authority had been given. The salvation of Israel became good news for Gentiles because the abolition of the law through Jesus' death meant that Gentiles who believed in Israel's God could become part of the renewed community of the people of God. It also meant that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, was the one through whom God would judge the idolatrous nations that had for so long conspired against the Lord and against his anointed king. Now, let's look at the details, beginning with some Old Testament background. The noun euangelion and the verb euangelizo are used in the Greek Old Testament and widely in Hellenistic Greek for the proclamation of good news, typically the public proclamation of good news in the public square because the content was a matter of public or social or political interest. For example, when the Philistines came across the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa, they sent messengers into the surrounding territory, proclaiming the good news, euangelizontes, to their idols and to their people. But the substantive background to the New Testament idea of gospel is found, of course, in a series of statements in the prophets where good news is announced to Israel and to Jerusalem regarding impending action on the part of Yahweh to save his people from destruction or lead them back from exile. So these texts that I'm going to read are from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Joel chapter 3. It shall be, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, because in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be one who escapes, as the Lord has said, and people who have good news announced to them, whom the Lord has called. 
or this one, Behold, on the mountains are the feet of one who brings good tidings and who announces peace. That's Nahum chapter 2. Isaiah 40, Go up on a high mountain, you who bring good tidings to Zion. Lift up your voice with strength, you who bring good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, See your God. And then finally, Like one bringing glad tidings of good things, because I will make your salvation heard, saying to Zion, Your God shall reign. That's Isaiah 52. And it's especially important because it directly links the proclamation of good news with the kingdom of God. The good news is that Israel's God reigns, he will comfort his people, he will redeem Jerusalem, he will intervene in the sight of the nations to save his people by bringing them back from exile. That is just the sort of good news that is heard at the beginning of the Gospels. We should probably also take into account a corresponding Gospel regarding the reign of Caesar a famous calendar inscription from Priene, dating from 9 BC, uh, for example, speaks of the birthday of the god Augustus, who would deliver his people from war and create order everywhere, as the beginning of the good tidings, the euangelion, for the world. Comparison has often been made with the opening of Mark's Gospel, where he says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Josephus says, another example, regarding the accession of the emperor, Roman emperor Vespasian, that fame carried this news abroad more suddenly than one could have thought, that he was emperor over the east, upon which every city kept festivals and celebrated sacrifices and oblations for such good news. Euangelia. So given this background, we have to suppose that if Jews in Judea or Galilee in the early part of the first century had heard an angel announce good news regarding the birth of a royal saviour, or a prophet proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand, they would have understood it to mean that Israel's God was about to intervene, perhaps in defiance of Rome, to save his people from a crisis. Jesus' gospel of the kingdom was the public announcement to Israel that Yahweh would soon act decisively to restore his people and establish his own reign over them. It was the good news of Isaiah 61, which was announced to the poor in Israel, that a time was coming when the devastated city and the surrounding land would be restored. Of course, Jesus believed that he would himself be a central actor in this restoration, which is why the Son of Man figures so prominently, representing the faithful community of suffering Israel, to whom kingdom would be given. The good news of what Yahweh was doing for his people would later be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, most importantly to the Jews of the Diaspora, in the traumatic period leading up to the Jewish war. Secondly, it was good news that Jesus was Messiah and Lord. The early Jewish Christian community added to the good news about the impending sovereign action of God the explicit belief that Jesus was the Messiah or Lord. Every day in the temple and from house to house, Luke says, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Peter explained to the Gentile Cornelius that God sent the word to Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Jewish Christians who arrived in Antioch following the persecution of Stephen spoke to the Greeks preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. Paul laments the fact that not all Jews believed the Isianic good news that was preached to them through the word of Christ. 
And finally, those who violently opposed the churches, who did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that is, who did not acknowledge that Jesus had been made Lord, would be shut out from the presence of God at the parousia. Thirdly, this was good news about the Christ, and through it, people were saved. The good news was that God had acted decisively in the death and resurrection of Jesus to transform the historical status of his people. Those who heard that announcement and believed it, whether Jews or Gentiles, were saved. Their sins were forgiven by God, they received the Spirit of God, and they were baptised into the regenerated community of the people of God. The Gospel was not itself the offer of personal salvation. Here we need to preserve the distinction that Scott McKnight makes in the King Jesus Gospel between the Gospel and the plan of salvation. The conversion of Cornelius provides a good illustration. Peter tells Cornelius and his friends and relatives what God has done for Israel through Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls upon the gathered Gentiles who presumably believe what they have heard and they begin to praise the God of Israel for what he has done. The Gospel was the announcement of good news to Israel about Jesus as Lord and Christ. The personal salvation of Cornelius and his household was secondary, an implication, a repercussion. When Paul writes concerning his Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, he means that Christ died and was raised for the sake of Israel. That is why it is in accordance with the Scriptures. The predominantly Gentile church in Corinth now stood and would be saved from the coming wrath of God by holding firm to the word about what God was doing for his people. According to the second of the two letters to Timothy, at the end of his life, Paul reaffirmed the content of the gospel that he had preached. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. It is still a statement about what God had done for Israel and as a challenge to the pagan world by raising Jesus, the son of David, from the dead. Fourthly, it was good news that Gentiles might be included in the covenant people. Paul believed that God would not allow the nations to walk in their idolatrous ways for much longer. The good news that he announced to the pagans in Lystra, who mistook him and Barnabas for Hermes and Zeus, was that they should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. According to Galatians, the good news that Paul proclaimed amongst the Gentiles was that they did not need to be circumcised and keep the law in order to get in on the action. The good news of the Gentile salvation in Ephesians was that as a consequence of the death of Jesus for Israel, the dividing partition of the law had been removed and Gentiles could become part of the commonwealth of Israel, fellow citizens, members of the household of God. Fifthly, it was good news that Jesus had been raised from the dead and appointed judge of the nations. In Athens, Paul preached the good news about Jesus and the resurrection and drew from this the thought that Israel's God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's in Acts 17. Paul's gospel in Romans is that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. If this is an allusion to Psalm 2, the implication is that Jesus was the king who would be given the nations as an inheritance and who would judge them for having opposed the God of Israel and his anointed king. 
According to Paul's gospel, God would soon judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, as in Romans 2. One of the best texts, I think, for understanding the meaning of gospel in the New Testament is Revelation 14, 6-12. Following his vision of the 144,000 martyrs gathered with the Lamb on Mount Zion, who had been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, John sees an angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. This is the gospel that the early churches proclaimed to the nations of the Greek and Roman world. It was a message not of personal salvation, but of the impending historical judgment of the living creator God on the whole political religious system of pagan empire. Fear God and give him glory, the angel says, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It's the same as Paul's uh, announcement in Lystra. A second angel announces the coming fall of Babylon the Great, which is Rome. A third vividly depicts the torment of those people who wholeheartedly supported the idolatrous imperial regime. How was this good news? Well, it was good news because it meant that the one true living God who created the heavens and the earth was about to establish his own empire through his son as a proxy ruler at his right hand in place of the corrupt and deceitful and demonic powers that for so long had ruled the Oikumene from Jerusalem to Spain. Finally, we can affirm that this is all still good news today. This story about the salvation of Israel and the historical vindication of Israel's God before the nations is good news for the world today. That is partly to be found in the fact that people are still called by the living God to be part of this new creation people, and as they make their way from darkness into light, from the old way of life into the new, they are saved. But for the church to account adequately for its existence, I think it has to be able to make sense of the whole story as a matter of history, and not only of belief. As Martin Hengel wrote 40 years ago, there cannot therefore be any proclamation of the gospel which is not at the same time a narration of past history. Thank you for listening. <laughs>